because it's hard running a company. And so at the end of the day, you have to really have a passion for what it is that you're doing because the games business is highly competitive and it's hard sometimes to keep people motivated when things aren't always going your way, right? And sometimes it's an uphill battle. And so uh, you have to really have a passion for what you're doing in order for you to maintain momentum and keep spirits high. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Design Exchange podcast. Name still pending, but maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Joining me today is Christian Calderon. Got it. That's right. He's the founder and like CEO of Game Jam. Fancy title. Yeah, that's right. It's a mobile game development company based here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. But he's also a board of advisors member of Ketchup. Yeah, ketchupgames.com. And before that, even other, other game companies, which we can get into as part of the interview. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn about his company's current games, you can find out more information at gamejam.co. That's right, gamejam.co. That's jam spelled J-A-M, <laughs> in, case, in case there was any doubt about that. <laughs> How long you been in Vietnam? Two and a half years now. Yeah, two and a half years. I moved in November of 2017. So, yeah, it's been a little over two and a half years. How has the time passed for you? It's uh, it's gone by super, super fast. You know, one of the, I think, I didn't really, you know, when you're in Southeast Asia, there's just so much to see, so much to so many places to go and, you know, you get it like a $50 to a hundred dollar Viet jet ticket pretty much anywhere within like 500 miles. And so there's the time just flies. It's just, there's just like so much in Southeast Asia. You can, you can look at so many flavors to, to try. So you've been doing a lot of traveling since you've moved here. Yeah. And still, I'm still like still going to new places like every month trying trying new foods. Um, it, I, I still haven't, like, I'm going to Bangkok for the first time this weekend. Like, and it's just so close. I've never been there before. I just, I just like, what? You know, like, there's so many places that are just around here that. So what's the secret to taking advantage of this location? Because I've become a bit of a curmudgeon and I'd like to stay home and I'm probably not getting the most out of it. So what would you say to somebody like me? Oh man, you gotta you gotta get out and 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 try the try the food. That's that's what gets me up. I mean, like I, I'm I'm also kind of I stay at home all the time, and um, but I do like to go out for traveling and trying foods and stuff. And I travel by myself most of the time, and it for, to me it's it's just all about trying food and and experiencing like the culture through food. I think is. It's the best way for me to to do it. In the greater region, what's been the best food you've had? Um, oh, that's a good question. I think Japan. Yeah, I I I, I can eat so much. Like going to the fish market and just there's just so much like you can have and all, all the fresh fish and sushi or or even like grilled grilled fish. I mean, everything is just so good fresh um 
I, I really liked Osaka actually because it was uh, more reasonably priced than Tokyo and you can find pretty much like all the same stuff but really good street food like the takoyaki is, is amazing. Next time you come to uh, Japan and especially Kansai, please let me know. Yeah. And we can do another episode if you have enough time. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So you came here, I think, expressly to start a mobile game company. I did, yeah. And um, But your background before coming here was also mobile games. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and the journey from, you know, not necessarily the very beginning, but the journey from at some point until now. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I can kind of start like from the be from the beginning. I, I've been playing games and making games since I was like 12. So I've always like, I've always been in, like, in love with games, but my mom hated when I played games. So literally like was banned from using a laptop for like half of my childhood. And she, she really encouraged me to like, you know, try something else. And so I ended up, um, I studied computer science and economics in, in, in college. And even though I'd play games all the time, still like afterwards, um, you know, in the, in the back of my head, like my mom was always there telling me like, don't play games. It's, you know, it's not going to amount to anything for you, that kind of thing. And so I ended up being, you know, wanted to make my family proud, ended up being an investment banker, you know, wearing a thought, wearing a suit every day, getting a good salary would, would, would make my parents happy. But at the end of the day, like I wasn't, I wasn't happy myself. And, uh, so I decided to, to make, try to make games. Um, I started at a company called Kixai, which actually just got acquired yesterday, uh, by, uh, I think it's called still, still, still group. Um, Kixai, K-I-X-E-Y-E, -E, um, and ended up going to a company called Dots, where I made this game called Two Dots, worked on a game called Two Dots with a good friend of yours. Um, and uh, by the way, it turned five years old uh, last week. Two Dots turned five years old. It's crazy. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. It's like having a baby growing up, but it's actually more more similar to having like a dog because in app years, app years are more similar to, I think, dog years. You know, things just grow like one year in app years is like... There's not a lot of examples of console games or hardcore games that have lasted, been viable more than a few years, more than even six months. Some notable exceptions would be something like Street Fighter 2, which has been played for like 25 years or something, but it's, you know, most games hit the shelf, they disappear. Right. I would think on mobile where things get published so frequently that it'd be even more rare for a game to kind of persist as long as that. Yeah. And, and the trend is that the life cycles of the games are just getting shorter and shorter. As, as you said, like as more games are being pushed every, every single day, I think it's like more than 10,000 games a month that are being published new new games every month that are being published and and so the chance of your game getting to the top you know top 100 is less than like one percent you know it's 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 so if you make a game and it even gets some visibility it's very it's, it's very rare and 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 for it to like do that for five years is just you know it's it's awesome 
with those kind of odds, what keeps you in the game industry? Yeah, I mean, having, you know, having that little taste of, of success and being able to, you know, every once in a while repeat it. Um, and it, I think is, is is always nice. But, you know, like, it's just the the... It's just the, you know, wearing shorts and going to work and, and making, working on games like that. Working on games are solving all kinds of different problems, you know, like, especially running a games business. It's like you're worrying about like making sure people are getting paid. Also making sure people are getting fed, making sure the game is fun or the economy is balanced, right? The, the game is making money or there are like good game ideas to make, testing the game to make sure that it's viable right or 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 that it's marketable so many different different complex issues within making games and running a games business that it's just like it's and they're fun problems for me to solve because at the end of the day i'm i'm making a product for you know my you know 12 year old cousin to 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 play and 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 say oh you know that's that's fun for for about two minutes and and well speaking of 12 year olds my 10-year-old son, um, most of his favorite games that are installed on my phone are from your previous startup. Oh, nice. Um, you haven't had a chance to, you know, we haven't downloaded any of the new company's yeah. games yet. But uh, when he got really excited when I said that you were in ja Japan and there was some chance of meeting meeting you. Oh, wow. Because he plays Chicken Attack a lot. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Pachi Pachi and Knights IO. He plays a oh, lot of that. Yeah, yeah. So how about your current baby? Yeah. Your game jam. What kinds of things are you up to with that? Yeah. So we're we're working on all kinds of different games. Um, learned a lot from from the from from the last one. And so we we actually launched a a game not too long ago, a couple like three months ago. And it it hit top ten, I think, in about twenty countries. Um, very popular here in, in Vietnam too, called Draw Story, uh, and it uses machine learning to figure out what you're drawing, and we put it in like a story setting. So you're this high school kid that's trying to escape school. There's these different episodes, and you you're going through each episode, and he's encountering different things, and you're drawing your way out, and depending on what you draw or what color you draw it in, like that item will appear in the game. So it's it's a pretty interesting game uh, called Draw Story. All right, and we're working on some other games right now. We have uh, uh, a couple of games with celebrities. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to mention it maybe in the next okay in, in the next episode. Yeah, but um, some a couple of popular celebrities that have one who has been actually in a game before. A uh, really popular game, but he now wants to make his his own game. And another celebrity that's actually never been in a game before. Um, so it'll be interesting to put him inside one. Uh, the draw story is that available on on Google Play and Apple iTunes? Yeah, yeah, globally and in every country on iTunes and, and Google Play. Is it okay to call it iTunes or is it just called the Apple App Store? App Store, I think App is like, yeah, App Store is, is... Which you access through iTunes, like if you're yeah. on a PC or, yeah. I mean, sorry, if you're... On a Mac. On a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, did you see the announcements from the Apple event yesterday, last night? 
Oh, I haven't, I, I will, I, I was going through them like, and, and then I just went to bed. That's the problem of being on the other side of the world is that you're, <laughs> you can't do, you know what I mean? Something's happening at a normal time in California. You're, uh, you're probably asleep or, or just waking up or about to go to bed. So uh, I'll, I'll catch up later. Have you seen any? I watched a highlight reel this morning okay. before going to work and there's a new Mac Pro. Oh, nice. And it, it's like everything I ever wanted, except for its starting price is $6,000. Wow. For just, you know, and then the monitor is also everything I ever wanted. And its starting price is also like $6,000. Wow. <laughs> so it's like $5,000. And then if you want the stand to hold it, that's $1,000. And if you want an extra anti-reflective coating, it's an additional $1,000 too. So you could pay, you could spend $7,000 on the monitor and I'm sure that that base configuration is configurable up to 10 grand or 12 grand or something also. So we're looking at a twelve to $20,000 computer when it's, you know, from the base to all the way fully configured, which as much as I, as much as, as much as it's a wet dream for me, I, I, I'm not doing the kind of content where I could justify that, that kind of a purchase. Right, right. I mean, maybe, yeah, it's, it's, I guess they're really putting the, uh, the, the, the purchase price and, and the pro. And they weren't kidding price. when they called it the pro. Right? <laughs> we told you it was for professionals. What are you complaining about? No, I, I think there's definitely businesses out there where they wouldn't really flinch. Yeah. But, um, I, I, um, for, for me, I've, I've always, like, I always get, I always like try to upgrade my my MacBook, but it I I notice sometimes some some like for recently in this this new one I just got last year maxed it out you know but it, it the so the keyboard ended up breaking and it's just like I, I spent you know all this money on on, a, on those a nice keyboards laptop. are a known issue yeah, yeah and, it's... and the keyboard went ended up going out yeah so I have to I also had a fairly expensive razor. Uh, razor blade laptop yeah and um, its keyboard was rubbished also so you just replace you, can you go there and replace it or how does, I guess you could yeah, yeah. you could I kind of tried to bear with it and hoping that there would be a driver update that would fix it but it was I think an actual physical issue and my warranty was expired before I finally sent it in for them to look at it so it's just one of those things because it's like you have a really nice laptop, but you it's like having a really, really nice car, but there's just something wrong with the steering wheel, you know, that's that's making the steering, you know what I mean? Just keeps it's drifting just, left. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like having, it's like, it's the strangest, it's just that one little thing where it's, I'm sure it's not the most expensive replacement, you know, for the, for the, for the device, but it really changes your whole experience when when that when that when something goes wrong the keyboard is one of the primary ways that you interface with your computer so for it to be a subpar experience at a premium price point is not really satisfying as the <laughs> end user whenever i press a space bar it it spaces it twice that's what mine did <laughs> that's what my razor did it would, like half of the time it wouldn't space and half yeah. the time it would space twice exactly yeah 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 that, that would have the same the same issue I'm having the same issue now. This is what's happened when they're trying to produce these low-profile yet still mechanical keyboards. They're having this issue. And um, 
I was perfectly happy with the not mechanical 2012 to 2015 MacBook Pro keyboards. They were fine. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't need them to click or anything. They, you know, as far as I'm concerned, less key travel means less carpal tunnel syndrome right. or something. But so my team, whenever like if I'll type something to them, like for example, like an app name or something, um, they'll literally copy and paste what it write. So I was uh, writing an app in a, an app name in my 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 keyboard was acting up and the app name the game name is ball ball blow up so I, it was ball blow space 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 up <laughs> so they copied and pasted that and into the into the and it just looked really funny like in the in in the app name i was like no no it's just ball blow ball blow uh, blow up as the you know one space each and like oh okay and then they, they fixed it but it's funny because they they thought I had intentionally wanted <laughs> the, the extra spaces for emphasis or something in the in the app name, but it's it's been yeah it's been causing all kinds of crazy problems in my life. <laughs> uh, but you're sticking with it. Yeah, I'm going to Singapore next week, so hopefully I can we'll stop by the the app store and 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 maybe they can fix it easily can always connect an external keyboard or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I'll pick up an external keyboard. I was thinking about too, like I was taking these like, uh, have you heard of Masterclass? Like the online? Yeah, it's like these like professionals teach you. Steve Martin teaches Steve comedy. Martin, exactly. So I was, Gordon Ramsay teaches cooking. cooking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Someone had recommended this to me the other day because sometimes I watch Netflix and like after – you know, spending so much time by myself, you know, at, at home here in Vietnam, you know, watch Netflix maybe for an hour or two and just the time goes by and then you're just like, what did I just do with like this two hours of my life? So anyway, I, I, I downloaded this master, master class and I learned, I was like, it's cool because you're learning, you're learning stuff. So I'm right now I'm learning, I'm learning how to DJ and, uh, with uh with dead mouse yeah <laughs> and so and so like i i've been you know getting it's just the last week you know i spare time you know just learning how to, but i need my because i don't want to invest in the equipment yet because i know if i it's like one of those things where i mean it's this this dj equipment isn't cheap you know so if you go in there and you make the investment but it could be one of those things where it's like okay like you you buy some equipment and then you you just never touch it again, you know. So I'm just trying to make sure. So apparently you can start you can start learning on your key on your laptop first, but you need the keys to to play. But yeah, the now, space key is probably the main yeah. <laughs> start stop button for the whole thing. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, well, you're enjoying that class so far. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I've been tempted, especially when they came out with that subscription that. It was like one flat price for unlimited classes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I'd like to still learn. And it's it's kind of this toss-up because there's so much free information on the internet these days. Right. You know, you want to learn for this podcast. I want to learn about uh, noise reduction and voice EQing. And there's many, many YouTube videos telling you how to EQ a voice right. for podcasts, you know? So you can watch YouTube videos and get the information there or 
you could, you know, maybe there's a master class with that's specific to this. And right. I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, what, what would you think would be the benefit of going through master class versus just learning from YouTube? It's a story that they, it's not, it's not just like a tutorial, right? Like obviously they're tutorializing it and they're going through and they're showing you, um, how do how do they how do they com- create like a composition of music or or how how they break down a joke right like but then there's also the story behind it about about them like why they got and and these are like you know celebrities or professionals that have made a really big career out of just doing this this thing and so it's like you're learning but you're also getting the story behind it like learning about and then and then they'll tell you things that you know, maybe you won't pick up on YouTube, like for example, how they started from playing sh- gigs in 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 like a, a little uh, a fifteen person you know audience to to a million people, and along that progression, like how they like A B test their songs or and so like you know stuff like that, like where you won't might, you might not get that in that level of detail and that story in a YouTube video. What I like about the YouTube videos though, sometimes they're, they're, they're very precise. Like they'll teach you how to do like maybe some specific tasks or like, and, and kind of go through the UI UX of it or, or, or why it is very tactical. Right. Whereas in this masterclass thing, it's not so much that, but you're getting like a story behind it. So it's at the same time, it's a little interesting. Is there any accountability built into it where you have to turn in things by certain deadlines or you're getting feedback from other students or? Not in any of the classes that I've tried so far. They're like short sessions of information, um, but they cover specific topics. But each class has like anywhere from two to six hours of content. So each class has a, has, has a lot of content and it's broken up into little little sections. For me, I think... If there was a, you get a grade when you turn in this project, I would be more motivated. Right. I don't know. I was like always kind of a good student in that regard. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to like art projects, I am kind of motivated to get a good grade or do better than my peers or whatever. Right. And there's also some like accountability of like progress of like if you're learning or not, right? Just like in games, like we want to see what our progression looks like. I'm paying for an English class for my team. There's one individual who I'm trying to get a feeling for how well they've progressed. So we've paid for, you know, three three courses. It's like like 40 classes uh, or more, more than 40 classes for maybe 60 classes for, for this one guy. And I I I can't really tell if his if his English has gotten better. So I asked. I asked for, you know, for them to test, test him. And so they tested him and like, oh yeah, it's great. His English is really good. And then, so I just, I decided to get a second opinion from another teacher. And she's like, oh no, like we, we have a lot to work on. And I don't know how they tested it, but, um, so I, I, I figured for that, like we need to do more regular tests to see like what, how is he, how he's improving. But yeah, I, I feel you. That's like super important. To, to to know like the progress or just to kind of grade yourself, check check if you learned anything. How's your Vietnamese coming along? A couple of weeks ago, I decided that I was going to get a tutor. And so I, I just recently got a tutor. 
but it's my Vietnamese is, is really bad. Even if I even if I try to speak, often people are like let's let's just let's just talk in English. <laughs> so it's hard, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me to practice. <laughs> I took some classes when I first came here, and then I've been you know, practicing casually, you know, at cafes or whatever for the last seven or eight years. And I still, to this point, like last night, I walked into a place, and I tried to convey a kind of complicated message like hey i was supposed to meet somebody here but i have to i forgot something i have to go pick it up so they should go directly to dinner without me and um the staff at this japanese language school this the vietnamese staff at this japanese language school did not understand so i tried vietnamese and uh, they understand they understood even less <laughs> uh <laughs> And then, uh, then I tried Japanese, and it was all good. They understood. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was kind of. Sometimes you you end up with these weird situations where two people can communicate better in a second language than either of them speaking in their first language. Right. You know, like that's that's interesting. Their Japanese was better than my uh, was better than their English, and my Japanese was better than my Vietnamese. So it turned out that was the most effective way to communicate. <laughs> and that's a very specific situation, but that's awesome. At, at least you guys figured out, you know, what you were what you were trying to do, right? So, so what happened? So they they told the person that you're trying to meet. Yeah. To, okay. They actually just went and got them at that point. Oh, got it, got it. It kind of made the whole thing easier. Mute. <laughs> I mean, at that point, yeah. What's like the weirdest thing you've come across living in Vietnam? One time, I was looking for my accountant's office, I saw this uh, restaurant and they were cooking an animal. And I thought at first that it was a, uh, like a lamb or a deer or something. And then I I realized that they were actually cooking a dog. Mm. And that was interesting. I had never seen that before. Uh, And um, yeah, I was a bit taken aback by that. But it's totally normal, as you know here, to to eat eat dog. So, I just for me, it's just not. As far as I know, I've never eaten dog here, you know, uh, accidentally or on purpose. But would you? I would, I guess, and uh, you know, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be rude or something. Right. I wouldn't let my uh, my affinity towards man's best friend, (laughs) you know, corrupt that social environment. That's, that's a weird way to phrase it. You know, I don't, I wouldn't let my own prejudices right. get in the way of something that could potentially be a cultural experience. There might be some cases where I would draw the line if it was, uh, I ate shark fin soup once in Hong Kong and it unfortunately was amazing. <laughs> Probably not from the shark fin itself, just the rest of the soup right. had a lot of flavor, but you know, I don't want to I don't want to intentionally contribute to anything that's going to make some animal go extinct right you right know? yeah uh, or anything that's harvested in a particularly uh unconscientious way like right. cutting off the fin and throwing the rest of the body into the water you know I, I prefer to avoid those kind of situation if I can but I also don't want to have my own American normalcy perspective of this is how things are and then not partake in some cultural experience 
because of my own bias, right. I'd like to as much as possible lower that, lower my own bias and try to be open to new experiences. I mean, I don't go out of my way looking for a dog. Right. <laughs> I haven't yeah, yeah. gone out of my way. I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could be like, uh, today I want to eat a pangolion or something like endangered and interesting like that. Right. But I, I don't want to. Right. You know, right. So. Yeah, I mean, you see all kinds of, you know, things that are a little bit different. Um, but, you know, I guess here it's like everything is, is there's, it's pretty, it's pretty normal to, to see I guess, you know, stuff like that. Um, it's just funny. Like when I, when I first moved here, that's when everything was like foreign to me and you'd see stuff like people, you know, driving on the opposite side of the road or, or just, you know, even, you know, just walking through tons and tons of cars. And it's just like, that is just not normal. Like, you know, to even to someone in like New York city, something like that. But here, like there's, it's just like a whole different place. So uh, you see a lot of different things. And and at first everything is pretty weird and then it becomes normal. So, but then it kind of changes you. So then I, I noticed like I'm going, like I was in Japan and I, I was in, I think I was in Osaka actually. Uh, no, I was in Tokyo and I was, I just, I just decided to and there was no cars, you know, and I decided to jaywalk and there was a, a man who just totally yelled at me for, even though there was no cars or anything. And so like culturally, like to me, it was normal, you know what I mean? But like, but for him, like he, he got, I think he got offended by it. Um, the, so it's just. <laughs> the counterpoint to that is Japanese will cross the street when the light turns green, even if a car is going to run a red light. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like. They're very uh, willing to trust the signal. Right. It's green, so now I will go. It's red, so now I will stop, um, which I personally disagree with. I right. like to use my actual facilities of awareness to look at if there's actually a car coming. Right, you know? right, yeah. Yes, it's seemingly safe to cross the street now, but that's an assumption you're making. And there's more data here you should be looking at before you put your life on the line there. Right, right. There's an interse intersection close to where I live in Japan and um, it's almost, uh, it's very often the case that the light, the there'll be a no walk sign when there's no cars around. And uh, I, see, I see the occasional Japanese go ahead and do it. Um, and I do it nearly every ch chance I get <laughs> as a uh, dumb foreigner, I guess. But yeah, I'm definitely some people would be offended. Right. Yeah. yeah. Don't you, you think you're so special? Yeah. You get to break the rules. You get to live <laughs> life by your own rules. We have this sign for a reason. Right. Right. You know? But <laughs> there's some things like that. There's things, cultural differences. There's a lot of times when you can say, uh, this isn't right or wrong. It's culturally specific. And then I think there's other things where you could say, no, no, it's kind of absolutely correct. And this would be one of those examples for me. Right. Yeah. I'd be like, uh, it doesn't actually matter what color the light is. What matters is that you don't cause an accident and you don't, you know, you don't hurt yourself and no one else gets hurt. Right. Either. Right. And like, it doesn't matter actually what color the light is. <laughs> In that case, you know, it's like should be considered as a uh, 
Now, if you're driving, I think it's different. Like if you're driving the car and the light turns red. Well, even then, not necessarily. If you stopped at a country road intersection in the, at two in the morning and there's no one there, except for a cop with his lights off waiting for you. Right. <laughs> right? Like, why not go? Right. Why not go? Yeah. It's like making a right-hand turn on red, right? Even which if it's... Yeah. yeah. Which is okay in some... Yeah. Some in, in most cases, yeah. uh, not in Japan, right. there, there would be a yeah, left-hand yeah. turn. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in most cases, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, it should be f- fine to do as long as you use your facilities of awareness... Right. To, to make sure that you don't call, you know, run somebody over. Right, right. Even if your light was green, you shouldn't drive through it because, I mean, without any question, because what if, um, oh man, I saw this horrible video in, I think, China. I think it was filmed in China from like a security camera. Right. Of this woman who got hit by some a pedestrian crossing the street who got hit by a person running a red light presumably drunk who knows right yeah which was bad enough by itself right um nobody helped her up there was plenty of other pedestrians and then when the light turned green uh several cars proceeded to run over her oh you know yeah um and like there's even one of them you know you you saw the front wheels bump and then they kind of paused and waited and like probably not sure what was happening and then you deciding to like like back up and like oh. go over again and then like yeah it, oh man you know it, it's just an example i don't want to bring too much example to that specific case but right, it's like right, an example right. of even though you have a green light it doesn't mean it's okay to drive right you know right. you'd still need to look at the reality that's there and right hopefully see enough of it to make a better decision right right are there any examples of this in games where the explicit rules of the game are this is how you should play it or these are the rules that you have that happen in this case but then when you but then they lift some restrictions and they allow you behavior outside of that explicit rule set do you know anything coming to mind yeah i mean it in in a lot of different like in a lot of different ways i mean not just with rules but yes like like even with rules like for example people will find exploits in your game right maybe something silly but at the end of the day like if you think about it like okay what is this what is the problem here is the problem that they found the exploit or cuz if you if you look into it depending on what it is like you often find that that user may be even more engaged in your game than everybody else. I mean, they took the time to figure out this exploit. You know, maybe they watched some videos about it. They maybe their engagement levels are like sky high compared to other people. They're just playing the game all the time. And <clears throat> if it has a negative impact on your game, or on your on your revenue, or on on on, on something, yeah, maybe you 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 should fix it. But at the end of the day, that's not always always the case. I mean, maybe these people are 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 uh, you know watching more ads than anybody else, right? So it, it depends on the situation, but there are a lot of cases like that where even when evaluating games, some publishers will say like, "Okay, I'm only going to publish your game if your game follows like these criteria. You know, you need to have this much retention. Um, you need to have this and that." 
But at the end of the day, a lot of it is relative, right? So like you can make a lot of things work. Um, so the, the, the rules are, are, you know, like, you know, they're nice to have uh, some guidance and structure to provide that, but like strictly following the rules all the time, even in games or even in game design or, or in, or in the business of games, um, is you know, definitely something that could get you in trouble if that's what you like live and die by. Um, but yeah, all kinds of yeah, situ- funny situations like that. There's a lot of times where the exploit ends up becoming the preferred way that people play. And if you remove it, they feel like you've nerfed the game and you've made it not fun anymore, right? Yeah, that could happen. Stuff like rocket jumping, I think it was probably never uh, in the original mind of the creators. Like, it was just an expressive ability that kind of emerged out of the rules that were already there. Right. But some things are just game breaking and have to be. Have to be fixed. fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned a point I want to get back to. You were talking about developing games to a certain point and then doing some testing to see if they warrant further development. So how far do you normally bring things uh, before you do the first tests? And like, how do you know when you want to kill a game? I try to I try to work on it for like no more than a week if possible to to initially test it to see if you know we can spend our time doing something else. Is that testing it in the market or just with your friends? In the market, yeah, if possible, um, and testing it with friends within a couple of days, like instantly, just to see if it's fun. Uh, and and then in the market, like a week, maybe a week. It's like a week in New Zealand. It could be any any country where you find your engagement levels could be very similar, or if it's you have a lot of language, then you have to make sure that it's the language is correct, right? Like you want to test in an English speaking country. With hyper casual games, oftentimes we don't use a lot of text, so and the main character is something like a ball, where it you know doesn't have a a gender or uh you know it's just it's just the sphere right anyone can recognize what it is and so with these games you can really test them anywhere um but usually you want to test it where your engagement levels are going to be similar to another country that you want to scale your game in um and this is just in the very beginning to see like if the game is fun when you're doing a test like that, what's the user experience for the person in that market where it's being tested? After one week, does the game disappear off their phone or they can keep playing that old version of it? I mean, what happens? Yeah, so we'll remove it from the store, but usually they can still, if they have it on their device, they can still play it. Yeah, for sure. If they haven't deleted it. Uh-huh. If they delete it, then they, they won't be able to get it back again. Do you measure that kind of stuff? Like in that early of a build, would you be able to tell if somebody... We can see if they they leave and they don't come back. Um, there are ways to, to, to proxy whether or not they've deleted the app, but we don't do any of that. We just, it's just a very simple, if they, looking at like engagement numbers, seeing if they, if they're playing, how long they're playing for, you know, how many times they play and if they come back. Um, and how many times they come back. In your vast experience thus far, is there anything that's stood out as being 
this is the way that you capture eyeballs. This is the way that you increase in, uh, retention. You re- you increase the chance that the player is going to play the game again. Yeah, there are these like, you know, kind of um, things, similar things that you see in a lot of these games where they, they're very engaging. Um but they they always don't apply to each game. Like each game is obviously super dynamic and different. But there are some things that are very common that let you know whether or not a game is going to be like, for example, like is a game really accessible? Can you just get in and play really quickly and enjoy that like core experience? Or do you have to wait through like like a 10-minute long tutorial? So if you have to wait through a 10-minute long tutorial, like usually a game like that, we'll see it much shorter like first user experience, you know, like uh, people will drop off quicker, right? So your your retention is a lot lower. Whereas usually in a game where you can experience the core gameplay really quickly, you usually see your day one retention a lot higher because they get that experience quickly and then they can come back, they know exactly what they're getting. So things things like that, like there are some some rules but again like also there could be some benefits to having like a really long tutorial because maybe you train that user on on how to stay in the game longer and if you have a game that uses in-app purchases or something like that to monetize the game like maybe you're training them on making purchases and that ends up being a higher lifetime value um uh, experience so each game is like super different but there are definitely some practices and some things that you can do where you kind of know what the outcome is going to be. I think uh, we have to leave this room. The the woman who, she's like pointing at her watch. Oh, okay. Got it. Let's go to one last area to work towards wrapping it up. And Sounds good. Let's do it. Where do you see the mobile game industry uh, these days? Like, what's the state of it? Do you ever go to these conferences, mobile game conferences, and they ask you to give keynote speeches and stuff? What do, what do you talk about? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's the the market is is growing still, um, even though you know smartphone penetration is is still growing, but it's it's relatively like mo- most people in the world have have smartphones at this point, and people are upgrading less often. People, yeah, upgrading less often, and and the and the devices are are you know pretty pretty good, right? Like. The games that we're pushing out don't require, uh, you know, a whole lot of, of 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 memory or s- space on your phone. So the incremental return you get on on your devices is is is, is getting less than than it was, you know, five years ago, in terms of performance. But there are other things that are growing tremendously on mobile. More and more games are getting pushed. So more content is getting pushed to 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 the ecosystem. Because of that, you see. Uh, more uh, engagement patterns are, are different. So now, like people have a few apps on their on their phone, and there's you know usually have some apps that they go to, and sometimes they try new apps uh, more you know maybe more often than they did five years ago, ten years ago, and you you're you're seeing kind of like patterns change. Also, there's there's new demographics coming into mobile. There are children that have grown up with a smartphone in their household they they grew up with it this device and now they're playing games right like whereas us uh, we didn't grow up with these like you know smartphones right like we grew up with like feature phones and and then those, those turned into 
kind of smartish phones, and and now we have these full blown. I was already working as a professional game designer when the iPhone came out. I was already on like my third game design job right when the iPhone was released right yeah and and so like maybe my second and so for for us like you know we we've uh, these devices have been introduced in, in, in into our in, into our lives through in, in our lifetime but there are people that are growing up with them now so their usage patterns are different, right? Like the w- the way they use the phone is different. The way they interact with the phones and engage with the phones are different. And so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, more ad spend is coming into mobile. Uh, you know, next year it's going to be estimated that there's $300 billion in mobile ad spend uh, across the world in mobile. And ad spend is what advertisers are spending on ads. Yeah, yes. Not yeah. what the players of the games are spending on ads or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What advertisers are spending um, to advertise on mobile mobile devices, revenue generated from ads. And that's growing double digits every year. So there's a lot of money shifting away from uh, TV, print, like these traditional ad mediums and into mobile, which is really, really interesting. Um and so, yeah, it's like the ecosystem is maturing, I think. It makes it more competitive than than ever before. But at the same time, it still presents uh, interesting opportunities in, in the space. Do games have to be ad revenue supported these days? No, not necessarily. In fact, most games are not ad supported. But now there's been a shift. Today, you're starting to see more games that are ad supported it's been a model that more people are more comfortable with and f- more familiar with than than before so we went from premium where you pay five dollars for the right to download the game to freemium where the game was free to play but if you wanted to improve your play experience most of the time that translated to if you wanted things to happen faster, like you don't want to wait around for something to happen, right. you can buy the currency and then spend that to make something you might have to wait an hour or a day to grow or build to happen instantly, to free to play, but just ad supported, whether that's interstitial ads, right? In right. terms of right. yeah. videos that, are, there, are interstitial ads always video or are they sometimes not? Yes, it can be, it could be, anything from a playable a video a static image or a combination of both so every so often throughout the game you might get interrupted by this ad or it could happen at strategic moments right, right. like yeah. um oh you died would you like more lives you could spend the in-game currency or you could watch this ad and get a life for free or something right right yeah, yeah. and uh just a little banner ads like at the bottom of the game or something too yep yeah Flappy Bird was that way, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant if you have a game where um, the way you play it is by just tapping the screen incessantly, that, you know, the chances that the user might just kind of mess up and hit that ad at the bottom, it's it's not zero. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there's there's always that. A chance that you can, you see some developers, they'll put UI elements down there and you often get a lot of misclicks. All uh, the pirated streaming sites do that. <laughs> if you want to watch like some TV show, uh, you know, you see the play button and you want to click the play button to play the video, but actually 
it just launches some pop-up ad or whatever. <laughs> or maybe there's like an X and you want to hit the X to make the thing go away, but the X is also a button. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. So what's the state of the art then in terms of monetization? Who's doing it the best and what's the, the most sophisticated? So I think like from a revenue per user perspective, in-app purchases still by far have the highest lifetime values or highest revenue per user. Games that monetize through through in-app purchases, like um, spending money with with your credit card, right? Although that being said, ads from a revenue per user perspective has increased a lot over the last five years. A game with one cent, you know, revenue per user in the United States from ads five years ago, that same game could have four to five cents revenue per user no changes at all just just from the market it means advertisers are, are willing to spend more money on mobile games or yeah cpms c means like cpms are increasing there's more there's more advertisers so it's getting more competitive an advertiser has to outbid another advertiser to show your ad and that being said if the margin is the same so for example if the the, the provider of ads is not pocketing more margin, right? Like if, if the net margin to you is constant and CPMs increase, you should be making more money. If the margin is unknown and some advertisers do this, they don't state what the margin is. And if you just take like some amount, then maybe the provider of, of ads is actually making, the ad network is making more money in this situation. So there's some ad networks that are transparent in their pricing and others that are not? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I don't want you to burn any bridges, but like, are you able to talk about who's good to work with and who's not good to work with? Well, I think it's there's a lot of ad networks that are good to work with, and those same ad networks could be bad to work with as well. It's all about how you work with them. So even if there are some networks that aren't very transparent, there are ways that you can work with them that will make it more transparent for you. So for example, you could set predefined price points and you could also integrate other ad networks. So they have to compete with the other ad networks. And if they meet that price point, then they can serve that ad. But if they don't, then you could have another ad network that serves that ad as well. So even though some ad networks aren't fully transparent, there are ways to mitigate against that, that risk by working with other ad networks that are, that are transparent. And is that something that you would just be implementing in your own game or app on a technical level or is this a business-to-business -business negotiating type of situation? It's a technical implementation, but there's also a business-to-business -business negotiation involved, right? In order to say, hey, you know, like I want this margin, like I want this rev share on 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 from your network, uh, or you know, I want this CPM floor. I don't I don't want you to serve CPM, you know, serve me an ad below this price ever, right? Like there are some. Is that something you would set up in a configuration file or a dashboard, or do you have to get on the phone and call somebody to do that? For things like RevShare, you you technically have most you have to talk to somebody. Um, for setting floor prices, a lot of networks these days you can do that in a dashboard. So it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, but it's a bit of both. And in terms of getting an ad network to take your phone call, do you have to be of a certain size? Yeah, it depends on who you talk to. A yes and no. Some some ad networks, for example, Facebook, if 
you're not spending a lot of money, they're, they're not really going to talk to you uh, if you're advertising yourself. But some networks that have a, a track record of working with indie developers will talk to you if you're not making a lot of money, if they see that you have potential because they want to grow with you. Um, and so you will find some networks that will talk to you uh, at an early stage. Um, and you will find some that won't like just because you don't have the budget or you don't have the revenue and they don't want to waste their time because these people have to meet quotas of their own, right? Like if you're working at Facebook and you know your salary depends on how much revenue you're bringing in, are you going to spend more time with the client that's bringing you, you know, $10 million a month? Or are you going to give time to a client where the revenue is unknown, but there's a 90% chance that it's going to be less than a thousand dollars a month. Right. So it, you know, you kind of understand why it works that way, but maybe you see that there's potential in this. Yeah. You might take the time to talk to them if, you know, depending on, on who that, who that is. So it's, it's relative, but usually that's the case. You will find networks that will work with indies. Uh, But most of the time, everyone has to keep the lights on and, and, you know, it's taking a salary and a lot of that is dependent on how much revenue they bring in. They have some kind of goals. Revenue, sometimes it's daily active users. Sometimes it's SDK adoption. Some people have different targets that they have to hit on, on depending on what sales team you work for. When I uh, first joined the game industry, it was predominantly console market at the time. Stuff like PlayStation 2. Right, yeah. It was extremely hard to get a job in the game industry, especially in a role like designer. Almost every single job advertisement you saw would say something like, must have shipped three AAA games as a designer, right? And then there's an inherent catch-22 there where you're like, hey, I'm new to the industry. I've shipped zero, and I'll never get to that magic three number if you don't give me a chance at zero, right? I'm kind of out of touch with the day-to-day game industry these days. Right. But my, I don't know, here's a wild suspicion. Yeah, yeah. But my wild suspicion is that since mobile games came to the fore, uh, it's a lot easier to get your first job in games than it used to be. You know, my only experience in hiring people for mobile game studio was in Vietnam and uh, at, at Gameloft, right? And our approach there was we were hiring fresh graduates and then training them up and we had extensive training programs. And then after a year, they would leave us and go to other, <laughs> you know, go to the competition or that was what they were doing. You know, I, they asked me to try to figure out ways to in, get people to stay around longer than a year so that the team could mature and uh, not only work on porting, where you take the game that was designed for one phone and make it optimized for a different phone, but also mature to the point that they could take on creation projects. Right. right? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, if do you have any finger on the pulse of the game industry these days, like how hard it is to get jobs or easy or? Well, I think what happened with mobile is it just in in the internet itself is it's democratized information such as you know game design where and also there's different types of game design right now 
And so with, with uh, like, for example, you design the way you would design a console game or a premium game or a freemium game or a freemium ads game. They're all different depending on the platform, depending on the game genre, depending on the, the, the economics, right? Because there are different ways you want to engage the player, different ways. Sure, there are like some overarching principles of game design that will probably won't change, right? Like the game needs, should probably have elements of risk and reward. It should be fun. It should like, a lot of these things should, will probably remain constant no matter what type of game you play. But there are different loops and different, um, uh, different things that you will want to manipulate in order, in order to optimize your game so it performs better. And with the internet now, a lot of this information is readily available for, for anyone that wants to learn. And with mobile, anyone can can make a game and submit it to the store, uh, you know, uh, the Google Play Store or... That, that That's right. I, if you want to say, yeah. if you had three published games under your belt, you could just do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's the, the, the barriers to entry have definitely been reduced with the introduction of mobile and and the internet in general and so i think that's definitely changed and it's also allowed for different skill sets within mobile i have a game designer that works with me and he's really amazing with hyper casual games but he's trying to learn more about other types of game design and so even as a, a game designer that you can focus and love one type of one type of game um I know a lot, of, a lot about that, but maybe you want to learn more about other types of, of, of games as well and it could be a totally different skill set. How about for executive positions in the game industry? The people who end up in those types of roles, what's their background normally? It's different. Um, I've seen executives from all types of backgrounds, whether it's product, marketing, banking, engineering, uh, there are a lot of executives with different backgrounds, all have passion, usually have a passion for games. Uh, I, think, I think you really have to at the end of the day, because it's hard running a company. And so at the end of the day, you have to really have a passion for what it is that you're doing. Because the games business is highly competitive and it's hard sometimes to keep people motivated when things aren't always going your way, right? And sometimes it's an uphill battle. And so... Uh, you have to really have a passion for what you're doing in order for, for you to maintain like uh, momentum and, and keep, you know, spirits high. Great. Well, Christian, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to find out more about his current company, again, that's gamejam.co. And uh, your kind of hit game that's out right now, what was it called? Draw Story. Draw Story. And that's available on Google and Android and, and iOS. And App Store. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. So uh, any, 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 any last words? Anything you want to plug before we hang no. up the phone here? Yeah, no. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to the next one. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot and see you all next time. Uh, if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, there's a like button and a subscribe button there. And if you are listening to this as a podcast, I don't know how that works normally but i'm sure there's some you can subscribe to our rss feed or something so yeah talk to you soon all right take care